audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. Now, in the first service, I have to be just straight with you. Um, I was getting a lot of blank looks as I talked about this at first, and I didn't know if, if it was generally because, okay, be careful about this, the, the, the first service is probably on average a little more seasoned than the second service, if you understand what I'm saying, okay, seasoned, that means old Okay, okay, I'm just, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm there, folks, man. I'm turning 45 this month. I'm, I'm, I'm knocking on that door. I'll be 50 before I know. I, wow. Anyway, so, um, but, but I know that there are maybe more of you who have better memories or who this explains a little bit more of your life who will find <laughs> the humor in this. <laughs> maybe it's just bad humor. I'm sorry. I do that sometimes. You know, when you are the parent of not one, but two daughters between the ages of four and two. So just put you there. It's been a while, while ago for me, you know. But, but when, when, you're, when you're that, and I know I've got several of your moms and dads out there. You're right there with me, okay? I would hazard a guess that you are anxiously awaiting the time when certain television shows or movies lose their charm. Is that, is that you? Um, what about this one? Dora. Are you, are you ready for Dora to say goodbye forever from your home? All right. Um, what about, this is just a little bit of, of, of my life. Barbie. I, mean, I didn't even, before we had daughters, I didn't know they had Barbie movies. Oh, they got a bunch of Barbie movies. Okay. Um, strawberry shortcake. Like to eat it, don't want to watch it. Okay, that's all I'm saying to you. These dorky little songs they sing constantly. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Now, the last one isn't quite as bad as the others. I've got to be honest. Um, is any Disney movie that has a princess in it. All right? And you've watched it again and again. If you've got a DVD player in your vehicle, you definitely know what I'm talking about. All right? You don't watch it, but you hear it. Again, and again, and again. Now, in order to be fair, I've got to flip this around just a little bit as well. If you happen to be the daughter of a dad between the ages of 30 and, you know, then you anxiously await the time when certain shows and movies also lose their charm. Any Godzilla movie, okay, I love Godzilla movies. I don't, I just, I do, Godzilla versus Kong coming out this month. I mean, seriously, folks. I mean, JV's gonna have to preach the sermon that week because I'm gonna be so distracted, so excited. I mean, that's big stuff happening. I mean, literally big stuff happening. All right, so anything like that, one of my daughters kind of gets into it, the other is like the eyes glaze over, you know. Um, uh, but this is the real one. For, for, for my home, any show that includes camouflage, tree stands, and deer antlers, Okay, any show along those lines, and our daughters are anxiously awaiting the time when those shows no longer have their charm, because I've watched them hundreds of times. I mean, they, they will never lose their charm. I'm sorry. All right. You know, as we look to God's word, let's think about this seriously for just a moment. When we look at God's word, 
there are some parts of it that are more familiar to us than others. And there are some encounters, there are some stories, because yes, there are stories from God's word. Jesus was a storyteller. He called them parables, they were stories. And, and there are certain ones of these that sometimes have become so familiar that when they're brought to our attention, we can fall into the trap of thinking they have nothing more to offer us. And there couldn't be anything further from the truth. As we look to Luke chapter 10, this is one of those places, right? Now set this up a little bit. Um, there's a few things we need to understand. This is, getting, this is getting very near the end for Jesus, okay? Within months of the time that he will end up on, on a cross. Right, so, so this is getting, and, and we understand that was an end and a beginning, so understand what I'm saying through that. But, but this is getting closely to the end of his earthly ministry, and he gets a question thrown out at him that is similar to another person asking a, 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 this, this exact same question. We looked at a little bit of that guy just last week, and a lot at that guy a, a couple of months ago. And we call him the rich young ruler. And he came to Jesus, and he asked this question, what must I do to attain eternal Life And he came with complete sincerity. He really did. Now, this guy that comes in the encounter we're looking at today, which leads to a story, he asked the same question without the sincerity. He was simply trying to trap Jesus in his answer. So he asks a question. Jesus asks a question. He asks a question. Jesus tells a story. All right, so let's take a look at it. Luke Chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. And I'm going to just kind of break this down a little bit. We'll stop a couple times and talk about it here for just a moment. A lawyer. Okay, we'll stop just for a second. <laughs> All right. Understand something here. We're not talking about a trial lawyer in this case. We're talking about an, an, ex, an expert in the law. Someone whose entire job was to understand what the law and the law was the Torah to these people. It's still the law of what we call it today. We call it the first five books of our Old Testament. So this guy was an expert in it. And not only that law, but the, the way that man kind of expanded upon that law. So this guy knew it. And he's trying to trap Jesus. So it says, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have, under you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Actually, it's not a bad question. And I'm glad that he asked it, whether he was sincere or not, because from that we get one of Jesus' most famous stories, most famous parables, but also one of his most challenging ones. So, the question is asked, who is my neighbor? This leads Jesus to tell a story. Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, let's understand something very quickly here. We've got three individuals in this story, including the man who was beaten, who aren't being very wise, okay? Because you don't go from, from Jerusalem to Jericho that road by yourself. It was a dangerous place. 
there were thieves, there were, there were, you're setting yourself up for failure by making a decision like this. But this man, who is probably a merchant, would be my guess, and he's going to Jericho to do business, would probably be a good guess, and the worst happens, and he's left half dead on the side of the road. Now let's continue on. And by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A couple of notes about these two guys. Both would be from the tribe of Levi. Both of them had responsibilities on behalf of the people of Israel before God. They were kind of go-betweens, if you will, between God and his people. Both of these men, the priests more specifically, but both would have responsibilities that would require them to stay ceremonially clean. Now, this guy looks like he's dead. If they want to help him and touch him, it would make them ceremonially unclean, and they could not fulfill their duties for a period of time. We're so quick to bag on these guys, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, because their compassion should have led them to do something different. But we need to be careful as well about not seeing the whole story here. So they see this, this beaten man... All right, who is coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, probably a Jew, all right, and they walk by on the other side of the road. The other thing is, they're like, this guy could just be bait. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he might have a little ketchup on his face right here. I'm going to go over there and help him. Somebody's going to clock me in the back of the head and take everything I got. All right, so they walk by on the other side. Let's see what happens next. But a Samaritan, guys, the Samaritan, the Jews, despise one another. Geographically lived pretty close together. They despised each other. They were to the level of enemies. Okay? Now, maybe not fisticuffs all the time, but it probably happened occasionally. They did not. And there's a whole lot of history behind that that we don't have time to get into. Just understand, they did not like each other. And by Jesus using, for his example, a Samaritan man, that would most definitely catch the attention of everybody listening to this parable. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him. He bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii. That's two days' wages. So understand, significant investment here. He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So Jesus' story is over. Then he turns to the lawyer and he says, he asks this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Look at his answer. He can't even say the Samaritan. Can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan because he, this, they don't like each other. He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. What an incredible passage to follow what we looked at last week. You remember last week we looked at generosity and how we are supposed to be a generous people. And to understand that in the most biblical sense, I love how we had life group last Sunday night and, and somebody brought to our attention, uh, and it was, it was a great, and from, from a personal experience in life showing us what it's like to manage something that's owned by someone else. You see, because we don't own what we have. If, if you think you do, try taking it with you when you die. All right? We have been put here to manage it for a temporary term. 
Okay? And, and what, what this guy at our life group said, he said, if we can get that lassoed in our mind, it makes it so easy to hold on to what we have loosely instead of too tight. All right? And that's what we looked at last week. Well, this follows us, because last week the general rule that we left with is this, be a generous people. But this week's going to be about how. How to be a generous people. Um, what we have here as we look to this is if, if, if you were going to underline one word in this parable, I, I think that word that you should, you might think Samaritan. No, that might be a good one too. But the one to underline is found in verse 33. And the word is this, compassion. Compassion. It's, it's, one, of my, it's one of my favorite words in Greek. You've heard me talk about it before. It's splachna, all right? And what it means is, is, is inward parts. More specifically, a, a discomfort of inward parts. And no, it's not talking about eating a, a bean and cheese burrito from a gas station, all right? No, it's, it's talking about the discomfort that takes place when you hurt for someone. You see them in a difficult position. And you can either empathize with them because you've been there before or sympathize with them. Regardless, you hurt for the individual. That's splachna, to have compassion upon them. And guys, it is the compassion of our God that drove everything that we have hope, our hope in. Understand that. It is a very much a, a godly attribute of compassion. And this passage that we see today has everything to do with compassion. As we're wrapping up this sermon series on the good life, we're going to insert a word in there, the good Sam life, all right? The good Sam life, and it's this. How do we develop compassion? More specifically, developing a heart for the hurting. How do we develop a heart for hurting people? Because you can take the vast majority of people in this room and in our culture and poss- quite possibly even the world, okay? And you can put them into one of two categories. And what these categories look like is, is this. You have, you have one category of, of, of people called the bleeding hearts, okay? And then you have another category of people called the hard hearts, The bleeding hearts, they see everyone as a victim. That's, 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 that's what it amounts to. Um, it's, it's, it's good people who've just kind of had a rough go of it. I mean, that, that's the way a bleeding heart individual, see, I, I have a very good friend, all right, I'm not going to use any names here, I'm going to probably try very try not to use names because I tend to say that and throw a name out there, so I'm, I'm going to try. But good friend of mine, and I've heard him say on occasion after occasion after occasion, oh, he's got a good heart. It's like, yeah, he's serving a life sentence because he killed three people. But man, I'll tell you what, you look at his heart, he's a good guy. It's like, no, he's not, okay? He's not a good guy. Do you understand that? But you see, that's, that's that, that, that bleeding heart kind of thought process of everyone is a victim all right, and, and they're really good, they've just been just tough situation, all right, so that's, 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 the, that's the bleeding heart way of seeing things. Now, on the other side of this, you got the hard heart, hard-hearted way of seeing things, and you know what, you know what it says, everyone gets exactly what they deserve, 
all right? You're in a bad spot, it's because you put yourself in that bad spot with some poor choices. That's the way that it works. And this is one thing about those who have that type of mindset residing in them. Their perspective can change pretty quick when they fall upon hard times. (laughs) It's like, I didn't deserve this. Well, yeah, you did, according to your philosophy, all right? So you've got bleeding hearts, you've got hard hearts. And let me tell you something, we probably should not reside in either one of those camps, Where we probably need to be is somewhere in the middle when it comes to seeing people and when it comes to compassionate living, all right? I got to tell you, um, I have preached on the Good Samaritan many times over the years. And earlier in the week, as I was trying to figure this out, and I was going several different routes with this, I was looking back through through my... files, you know, of, of, of past sermons, some old hard copies I've had, but, but more of them on computer. And I was like, oh man, I can't do that. I already did that. No, I can't. I already did that. Did that. Did that too. And I know you guys remember every point of every sermon I've ever preached. I know that for a fact, okay? So I'm like, how am I going to present this in some sort of original way? Well, I went to go get some help. A a, a preacher that I very much appreciate, as well as a writer that I appreciate, is a guy by the name of Larry Osborne. You've heard me talk about him a little bit before. And so I got some help from Larry Osborne on this message, and all of you should say thank you, because you'd be like, I think I've heard Jamie say that sometime before. So how do, we, how do we do this if we are going to try to end up somewhere in the middle of compassionate living between hard-hearted and between bleeding-hearted? Anyway, um, how do we do this? If you like practicality, get your pens ready because we're going to have some lists today. Some of you are list people, all right? Uh, get your pens ready. Get ready to write some stuff down because this is going to be very practical. And JB stole my term during announcements. I was going to tell you, buckle up, all right? That's my, that's my term, JB. Come on, don't be stealing it. All right, so buckle, buckle up and let's go. Right off the bat, divine engagements. Divine engagements. What that means is, is, How do I know what God expects from me when I come face to face with the situation where someone is in need? Is there some way of knowing what God expects? Yes, there is. And we're going to put this in list of priority. Priority number one, family. Family. And when I mean family, I am not using it in a figurative sense or in a broader sense in any way whatsoever. I'm talking about Immediate family, maybe a little bit extended family. I'm talking about the people you share life with. And by blood types, you are connected to them. I'm not talking about the blood of Jesus. We'll get into that later. I'm talking about family. And God expects us to take care of our family. Now, here's where we're going to start bouncing around some. So be ready. Turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5. What you find in, in, in 1 Timothy... 2 Timothy and Titus is, is Paul writing to his, a couple of young protégés of his, giving them advice when it comes to working with churches and working. Because when you're working with a church, what you're really working with is people. All right? So he's giving them some advice, a, a lot of really good advice. And we get this little gem here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. And this is what it says. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
That's some harsh words right there. You catch that? Denied the faith worse than an unbeliever. In other words, God expects us to take care of our families. It is of primary importance to such a level that it highly affects our relationship with God. Number two, fellow believers. Fellow believers. Now we're expanding that family out to the blood type of Jesus Christ. When I mean this, the ones we are connected to by the blood of Jesus. Turn over to Galatians chapter 6. I'm not going to have to, you're going to have to turn a whole bunch of pages, but you're going to turn from place to place quite a bit here in the next few minutes. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. It's Paul writing to the church in the Galatian region, and this is what he says. He says, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. There are multiple reasons for this, folks. For one thing, we're family connected by the blood of Jesus. The other reason is this. Who in the world is going to want to be a part of a family that doesn't take care of each other? I mean, seriously. Is that a family you'd want to be a part of? Okay. So it's pretty high on the priority list. First, we take care of our family. Secondly, we take care of our family in Christ. Number three, widows and orphans. Turn over to James chapter one. James chapter one. Now understand something about widows and orphans in this time frame of when this was written. They were the most vulnerable of society. Because of the culture and because of the way things were, women did not have a lot of opportunities for employment before them. Now, there were some women who broke down those barriers and did Lydia Lydia in the book of Acts. Whoa, what an incredible woman. A very successful businesswoman. She's not alone. But those barriers were very hard to break down. Okay? And there was no social safety net for widows and orphans. Um, I've told you uh, multiple times over the past year how much I appreciate the, the series Chosen. Right? They're in the works of about being to wrapping up that, that second part of that series about the life of Christ. And um, now understand when they put this together, what we get here when it comes to specifically the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get kind of a skeleton. So when you're trying to make a movie or something, you're going to have to flesh that out just a little bit. Right? So they take some poetic license with it and stuff like that. And, um, but I, from what I've seen so far, they do a pretty good job with it. I, don't, I haven't seen anything in just the first season that was like, whoa, I'm not sure about that. Okay? Very first episode, you get uh, a character that's going to be a pretty strong character throughout the series, you can tell. And she's a biblical character. Her name is Mary. Now, there's a lot of Marys, but this was Mary of Magdala. We call her Mary Magdalene. A woman who was a prostitute, a woman who was demon-possessed, a woman who Jesus changed her life, all right? So they try to paint a little bit of a backstory of Mary of Magdala. And what they did, now, like I said, this is where they're just fleshing stuff out a little bit. We don't know why she got into that horrible position she was in, but the way they, they portrayed it is her father that she loved very, very much and who was a caring dad died when she was young and left a widow and a young girl who had nothing. And she ended up going down this road of misery and life. 
before Jesus changed everything. And what, what I appreciate about them doing that is it, it brings to the forefront of our minds that there were vulnerable in that society. There are still vulnerable in our society as well. But let's look specifically at this. James, who's a half-brother of Jesus, by the way, and this is what he had to say about widows and orphans. James chapter 1, verse 27. Here's what it says. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. Let me tell you something. When you see yourself, when you see the vulnerable of society having a difficult time and you step in the gap to try to help, you know what God does when he sees that? He says, well done. And he likes it. Understand? Okay. Number four. So we've got family, we've got family in Christ, fellow believers, we've got widows and orphans, and now we've got one, and I'm not going to send you to a passage of scriptures, we've already looked at it, neighbors, neighbors. Now, when you, look to, when you look to the Good Samaritan, you say, which man was a neighbor, which man was, was helpful to the other, he, he went to an enemy, you know, it was the Samaritan who was helpful. Neighbors, in the very real sense is just simply those who are around me in life. Those that you spend time with, whether it be at work, whether it be at ball games, whether it be at school, wherever it might be, those who are around me. You know, there was one of my, one of, one of my professors back in college, and he was not a missionary. He had been on a number of short-term missions trips, but he never spent a significant, hugely significant amount of time outside the borders of the United States of America, but he really had a heart for it. And he was, tried hard to be a strong encouragement to, to students at Bible college who that was their goal, to go onto the mission field outside the borders of the United States of America. But here's what he told them. He said, here's your litmus test. He said, before you go step on the sands of the Sahara, okay, I got a question for you. What are you doing for people here. If, if, you, if you see yourself going and sharing the gospel over in Nairobi, okay, are you sharing the gospel here? If you go seeing yourself helping somebody in Chad, what are you doing here? Are you helping people here? What are you doing now for those who are around you? So when it comes to the expectations of God in our generosity and our willingness to act out on the compassion that we have. It starts with family. It goes to our family in Christ. It goes to, the, to those who are vulnerable in society. And then it goes to our neighbors. That's a pretty big list, isn't it? I mean, seriously. I know what you're thinking. If you're over in this hard heart camp, you're like, how in the world am I going to do that? And if you're over in the bleeding heart camp, you're probably thinking the same thing. How in the world am I going to do that? You know? Something we need to understand as we move on. Did you know that Jesus didn't heal everybody? Now, I'm talking about when he walked here in this world for those three years of ministry. I'm talking about physical ailments here. There are people that he did not touch and heal. How do I know that? Well, you can read it in scripture if you're looking closely enough. Acts chapter 3, there's an encounter that takes place between Peter and John and a lame man. This lame man was crying out for alms. That was kind of his job. He was a beggar. 
And he was crying out to Peter and James, or Peter, Peter and John, um, hoping to get some get some uh, some change from them or something, just some money. And and he he's crying out to them. And Peter says, "Hey, look, uh, I don't have any money to give you, but I'll, I'll give you this. Get up and walk. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk." Okay, now you continue to read about that. People see this miracle, they're glorifying God. That catches the attention of the Pharisees. So when you read the rest of chapter three on and into chapter four, you get a little more details about this guy. He was lame in both of his legs. He could not walk. People brought him every day and carried him to the temple, specifically the gate called Beautiful at the temple. It's one of the main entrances into the temple. And he stayed there every day asking for money, and the guy was 40 years old. Who saw this man before? Jesus, everyone, and Jesus was one of them. Jesus did not heal everyone. Now you can say, and you can just play devil's advocate. Well, he healed him through Peter a few years later, and he knew he's going to. Yes, yes, that's what I'm saying. But I'm telling you this: that even Jesus did not heal everyone physically, and folks, we can't do it either. But that doesn't mean that we have been given permission to remain in this hard-hearted camp right here. Let's continue on that thought for just a moment. Okay, when it comes to having compassion on someone and when it comes to trying to help them out, this is very important. Offer help before offering advice. (laughs) You got that? Offer help before offering advice. You know, the funny thing about it is, and I've experienced this in a personal way, and when I talk about the personal way, I'm talking about me being the one in the wrong, okay? Sometimes, myself, I can get a pretty, pretty tight zipper on the old wallet, but boy, I'll let this thing go. Man, you're in a bad spot. I can tell you why you're in that bad spot. You need to get out of that bad spot, you know? And uh, it's not helping the situation probably a whole lot. Why don't you turn to just a few pages over to 1 John. 1 John. It's right there near the end of your Bible. 1 John chapter 3. Specifically, verses 17 and 18. And understand something. I'm kind of cherry-picking some verses here today, but there are a lot of other verses that back them up, and we don't have time to read all of them today, all right? Got to get you guys out of here so you can get to El Pablitos. Okay. All right. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. This is what it says. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And now check out, if that wasn't strong enough, look at verse 18. Little children. Don't you just love being little children, all right? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Folks, we know this from both sides of the equation that nobody is going to listen to what we have to say if we're not willing to help. And we probably should be helping before we're talking. You know, there are three men specifically from Scripture that get a lot of flack. All right? They had some funky names, so I'm not going to tell them to you. I probably can't remember them. (laughs) I think of funky names from the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's not the three guys I'm talking about. 
These guys came earlier than that. They had one thing in common. They had a friend named Job. And Job had lost everything. Everything. And we bag on these three guys because we have chapter after chapter after chapter from the book of Job in our Old Testament that shows these guys giving horrible advice to Job. And their advice is like this, Job, what did you do wrong? Because the only reason you're in this position, it's a bad position, but the only reason you're there is because you did something wrong. And God is punishing you. And they said it again and again in a bunch of different figurative and flowery type of ways, all right? Trying to sound really smart. But they were saying the same thing again and again and again. So much to the point that when God shows up, he tells them to shut up. And the only thing that saved them was Job praying for them because they gave horrible advice, all right? So we like to bag on those three guys. But do you realize what happens before they ever gave any advice? Some of you heard me talk about this before. They showed up, and this is the scene they arrived to. They had heard things were bad for Job, but when they showed up, he's sitting in ashes. His clothes are sackcloth, not too comfortable. And he's got broken pottery. The only relief he can get for the pain he is in is to scrape the sores on his body with the broken pottery. That's the scene that they arrived to. They proceed to sit down with him in the ashes and sit there for seven days without saying a word. So let's be a little careful about piling too harshly upon these three men. I've never sat with somebody hurting for seven days before. Offer help before offering advice. And here, this next one is a big one. Brothers and sisters, this is one because I'm talking about genuine, very genuine discussions have taken place amongst all of us with this next one. It's this. We need to help fix a problem, not feed a pattern. Understand? Turn to Second Thessalonians and have it ready. I'm going to turn there too so we can jump right into it here in a second. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Hold a finger there for, for just a little bit. You know, it can be kind of tough to offer help to someone when we realize that it was their poor decisions that put them in the place that they are. Would you agree with that? I mean, it, it's tough. It's, it's like, man, you're in a tough spot here. But you put yourself there. Okay? And, and sometimes having that, and I'm not saying that you're wrong in your thought process here, or I'm wrong in my thought process, but we cannot allow that to make the zipper a little more tight on the wallet, okay? It can be tough to help someone in a problem that is the consequences of their poor decisions, but there's nothing in the Bible that says don't help them. But here's the question, because the Bible does speak to this. When does that help become enabling? 
At what point does that happen? I'm just gonna throw a general rule out here. You can take it for what it's worth, okay? Help twice. Twice. They get in a bad spot, help them out. They get in a bad spot again, very similar to the last time, help them out again. They get into a bad spot a third time, mm, might be about time to say, oh, I think you're kind of on your own here. Why don't you look at 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. It's kind of an interesting context of what's taking place here. Um, Paul is talking about the time that he and Silas were there in the church in Thessalonica and they were establishing the church. And Paul had this, this habit. Now, it kind of, kind of bit him in the backside when it came to his, his ministry in Corinth. But Paul didn't want to be a burden on anybody. And Paul was a tent maker. He had, a, he had an occupation. So what Paul would do when he would come into a city to establish a church, he would preach during the day and in the evenings he would work. He didn't want to be a burden on anyone, okay? And Paul's kind of talking about that here in his letter, his second letter to the church in Thessalonica. And on the heels of that, he, he brings up and he says this statement. Verse 10, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. For when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Wow. That's quite a statement. You know the thing about enabling? When we fall into that trap of becoming enablers, this is how you will know if you've, if you've unintentionally become an enabler. When you finally draw the line in the sand and say no more, they get mad at you. We need to help fix problems, not feed patterns, people. And that's a tough one. That's a tough one. So we wrap this up. Finally, probably what we need to understand is this. We do, you do what you can. You do what you can. Now, last week, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on because last week we talked at length of how we are wealthy people. And, and when it comes to, if, if, we, if we're not worried about what we're going to eat this week and we've got several, several changes of clothes, then in, on, on the grand scheme of things, in a worldwide way, we're in a pretty elite percentage, very small elite percentage, all right? So, so understand that. We, we are wealthy people. But even amongst wealthy people, there, are, there is an end to resources. <laughs> you know what I mean? There, there really is. It, it, it doesn't, unless you're Bill Gates or somebody. I mean, I don't know if he could ever. I mean, Garth Brooks said his grandkids, grandkids, grandkids couldn't spend all his money. <laughs> I don't know. I might disagree with that. Okay? Um, give me a shot at it. We'll see what we can do. All right. The resources will run out. Why don't you turn, finally, there's only one more to look at after this. Turn to 2 Corinthians, the writing of Paul again. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now what's taking place here is, is Paul's writing a second letter to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was a pretty well-off church, all right, made up of well-off people. And um, there was another church that was not well-off, and that was in Jerusalem, 
Things were very tough in Jerusalem at this point. So what Paul was doing is he was going from church to church that he's helped establish. And they were, each one of these churches were putting together collections that they were putting into the care of Paul and his companions. And they were taking that to Jerusalem to help out with the people in need there. Okay, So Paul is writing to Corinth telling them to be prepared for when he comes with a collection so that he can add it to what has been collected and can be taken to people who are in drastic need. So, in the midst of him encouraging them to put together um, a collection here, he, he lets them off the hook just a little bit here. Of There are resources limited at times. Okay, Look at verse, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning of verse 12. Paul says, For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Do you understand that? Give according to what you have. Some can give more, some cannot. He goes on to say, For this is not the e- for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance is supplying their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathers much and did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. That was the way God took care of his people by giving them manna many, 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 many years before. Basically, what Paul is saying here is he says this, don't, if you're in a position where you can give to others who are in need, don't be so foolish or prideful enough to think that the shoes can't be switched, all right? And you might find yourself in need one day. I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, it is a humbling thing to accept a gift of need from somebody else. But most people in life find themselves there at some point. We get a lot of advice here. God does expect us to give. God wants us to offer help before offering advice. We are to be those who help fix a problem, not not establish a pattern. We're not to be enablers. And here's the other thing. We are to give according to how much we can give. I mean, there's so much practical advice about this in God's word. And let me tell you something. Guys, we are a well-off people. And what that means is that we have a level of responsibility that the truly poor in our world don't have. And it's not easy to navigate those responsibilities at times. 